myself some of the wackadoo religious stuff that I believe. And I offer up what I believe is a fair criticism of my former faith, the Mormon Church. Now, if you're new and welcome, you're listening to episode nine, and you might want to back up and listen to previous episodes before continuing. But you know what? You do you. But if you're new, I'll stress that this is fun poking and criticism directing done at the church, the organization. You know, I'm not mocking members because, again, I used to be a devout one of those. Now, my family, almost all 100 and change plus first cousins and everybody, I mean, most of them are still Mormon, and I love them dearly. Uh, Well, not all of them. I mean, you know what? Law of averages. I mean, we've got a couple of knuckleheads in the group that large. But mocking self, critical eye at the church, like, Uh, If your lovely Aunt Mary Jean is a Mormon, I am not calling her a sadist or an evil person or something if she just so happens to be Mormon. Although I am going to have to ask you to have her send me a pan of funeral potatoes because that is a much better state dish than Jell-O and I miss it desperately. And no, I'm sorry, I'm not a fan of Jell-O. It is made of horse hooves. And if it isn't, you know, it just, it feels like it is. And also... It isn't a side dish unless, of course, you're eating in the Jello Belt, aka the part of the U.S. that extends from BYU, Idaho, down to Queens Creek, Arizona. Jello. It's what makes Utah, Utah. Wait, where was I? Hey, thanks for tuning back in. So today's podcast is about a really tricky subject. And I say that because for some folks, this kind of concept very quickly turns into gaslighting. Now, if you're not aware of the term gaslighting, it's this. It's a tactic in which a person or an entity, in order to gain more power, makes a victim question their reality. This is a common technique of like abusers, dictators, narcissists, cult leaders. Um, You know, it's done slowly. So the victim... Some people don't like that term victim. The person uh, doesn't realize how much they've been brainwashed. So, hey, because it's good to know and we've got the time and you've got the beer. I'm sorry, but that was like a super effective commercial from back in the 70s. Um, So here are some techniques used by those who gaslight. Step one, they tell straight up blatant lies like to your face and there you are you can't believe that they said what they said you're shocked but you know they just keep on living because they know that you won't challenge it because you're so off kilter from their lying lies step two they deny that they said whatever hey you can have proof like say a text or a letter And you can see the truth, but they just deny it exists. And then you start to wonder if you've taken crazy pills. Step three, they wear you down over time. And this is the really bad part of it. Just like that blatant lie, the denial of fact over and over, it's slow and it's steady. It's like putting a frog in cold water and then turning the heat up. It's so gradual frog doesn't even realize what's going on and can't save himself and then it's too late step four 
their actions don't match their words. For example, the LDS church says they love their gay members, but then they insist their gay members live an entire life without love or feeling complete. Step five, hmm, they try to align people against you. So they get people who will stand behind them no matter what malarkey they've said, no matter what garbage they've done. Then they use those people as a sort of like army to get you back in line. Everyone here thinks I'm right. Everyone here knows that you're wrong. And the thing about this is oftentimes the people aligning with the gaslighter never even said that explicitly because they don't know what the truth is because the gaslighter has been lying to everyone. Okay, that's the end of our foray into what this horribly manipulative and disgusting tactic is. Um, maybe stick to the end and see if it lines up with today's topic, Mormon-splaining. I also like to call it faux intellectualism. Now, when I was a devout apologist for the church, one thing that always gave me comfort was the scripture that's in the Mormon canon that's called the Doctrine and Covenants, and it reads, the glory of God is intelligence. I love that. I still do. And my favorite subject in school was science, and particularly life sciences like biology and especially microbiology, and that was my course of study in college. And then later, I went back to school and I became a master gardener. I love to immerse myself in horticulture and botany and environmental sciences. You know, since I was little, I yearned for knowledge. I just, I wanted to know everything I could about everything. And I loved that the Mormon church appeared to support this idea. So Mormons are encouraged to go to college and to study. And, you know, the ultimate goal is to get a degree from BYU which colloquially is known as Breedham Young. <laughs> okay, what I always found interesting, and when I was a believer, like I really loved to point to, was how from the beginnings of the church, the leaders grappled with the world of science and like attempted to fit the round world of religion into the square hole of fact. And fair, you know, many religions do this. But the Mormon church is a little different. Um, first of all, it's a modern church. And like, instead of calling Copernicus a heretic for, you know, daring to challenge what the Catholic scientific or what the, you know, the Catholic church taught um, was, you know, the order of the universe. You know, the Mormon church teaches that God is the author of science. So all scientific laws have to obey him. He's their creator. So if a law of science isn't understood, well, I mean, that's just on us. That's kind of refreshing. So God is basically just waiting for us to learn where the antimatter goes. There's no challenge to the laws of gravity or thermodynamics. See, if it doesn't make sense, then we mere humans just aren't in the know yet. I mean, I could live with that. And I did. So in 1993, while I was still in college in Southern Utah, a massive controversy was sweeping the Jello belt. So professors from the Lord's University, aka BYU, had discovered information that was contrary to the church's teachings. These were the September 6th. 
So they were fired or forced to resign from BYU. Then were all excommunicated and removed, their membership gone. So after this, the church's research division started chugging away on the prove our way is true train. So that outfit, incidentally, was known as FARMS, and that stands for Foundation of Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. Now that site and organization has since morphed into another group that's now called FAIR, which is the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research, and I've mentioned them in previous podcasts. Now that word apologetic information should be a huge red flag. Both outfits exist to prove Mormonism is true through academic documentation. So this is what we had talked about before. Like if I say I found a once believed extinct bird, a dodo, and I tell my friend I found a dodo, who then writes an article for ourdodosextinct.com, and then a third friend writes an article citing that previous article for dodosnolongerextinct.org, hashtag the truth is out there. Citing friend one and two. And now uh, that that third person then claims to an ornithological society at large via a TED Talk, that they have absolute proof about the dodo's comeback and then just cite themselves and their friends? Like, that's not how research works. That's not how smarts work. Yet somehow, somehow, this is precisely how the church's research organization works. Step one blatant lies. Because, (laughs) funny thing about that academic uh, documentation that fair.org provides, it all comes from Mormons. Mormon book publishers, Mormon schools, Mormon academics, Mormon leaders. This whole methodology is a lot like how like those weirdo uh, climate-denying scientists, for example, still manage to not be run out on a rail. And by the way, listeners, the world is round and is getting hotter because science. Okay, so when those folks of the September 6th lost their jobs and membership in the church, I, at the time, uh, was working for uh, the college that I was going to in Utah, and more specifically for the professors in the letters and arts department. It was awesome. I could do my homework and get paid. It was a pretty cush gig. Plus, I learned that not all of them were LDS, but they were all LDS adjacent, um, you know, because we were in Utah. Um, So I get to ask them, I get to ask them, I could ask them like all sorts of questions. Now at the time, I believed that, you know, that this would help me because I was starting to ask questions again, and I was starting to feel really troubled. So I thought, well, this is where I would get all of the answers that I needed so that I could keep my faith and hopefully build my faith. So one of my professors and I had lunch one time, and he wasn't a member any longer, although he'd been raised um, in the church. 
He'd served a mission. He'd married his first wife in the temple. He had callings in the priesthood, you know, like the whole nine yards so that he could get his planet of quesadillas. Um, new listeners, that's the plan of salvation, episode three. And if you'd rather have a planet of, say, cat dog or beluga whale, hey, that's up to you. I want a planet of quesadillas and you're not the boss of me and if I get to be a goddess with my own planet because I did all the Mormon steps I'm a do what I'm a do. Back to my lunch with the once pure Mormon now intellectual parasite. I'm just kidding he was a great guy I liked him so much and for the purpose of this podcast I'm gonna call him Dr. Ned. Now Dr. Ned asked me in a very delicate way he, he did try to be gentle with me um, it, he asked me if, if I actually believed in it all, you know, the vision of golden plates in the ground found thousands of miles from where they'd allegedly been written, all of the revelations, the polygamy, the doctrine, the fact that there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that a Jewish prophet from Northwest Jerusalem, born and raised, tribe of Manasseh is where he spent most of his days, chilling out, maxing, relaxing all cool, trading olive oil and leathers with fellow Jews when a couple of tribes who were up to no good started making trouble in the neighborhood. His family took flight and the Lord God cared. Build a boat, take this fall, I'll direct you to where. You're welcome. And also, a yes, Mormons believe a Jewish merchant family was told by God to randomly march to the ocean, build a boat, sail to the promised land, and were given a magic eight ball, it's called the Liahona, that said, try again later when they were wicked. And my sources point you to 17 knots due west when they were good. And this is where Native Americans come from. No, really. So my professor, Dr. Ned, is asking me if I really believe this stuff. And I, being a foolish, naive, true blue Mormon that I was, took the opportunity to bear my testimony of its truthfulness. Because when it feels good, it's true, right? Mormons living truthiness before Stephen Colbert. And right there, over burgers and fries at our town's frost stop, I explained how it was all true and that we just needed to be patient so it made sense. You know, Heavenly Father would reveal why there was no accounting for all of these once Hebrew originating folks just gallivanting across the Americas or why DNA evidence shows unequivocally that there is absolutely no correlation between Israelites and what is referred to as the American Indian. Nor are there any signs whatsoever of these epic cities they built where the Book of Mormon claims that they are. Or is there any sign of them ever existing? Not a spear, a wall, a bone, a tooth, a nada. But that's just because we don't understand yet, you guys. Oh my gosh, be patient. 
So he looked at me for a minute and he'd been like patting my hand the whole time. He was, he was like a Dumbledore to me. <laughs> and he said, well, I guess if you believe a virgin gave birth to a demigod, then it's all downhill from there. Now for me, at the time, that was all I needed to hear because I did believe in the virgin birth. But there's an important message in what he said. Faith doesn't require logic. And in most cases, defies logic. And Western religions, both you know Catholic and Protestant, have come to an agreement that certain aspects of the Christian Bible, the stories within, you know, they may or may not be historical, depending on, you know, the current flavor of the day. The entire earth covered in water at the same time? Oh, sure thing. A man living inside a giant fish, a catfish, or perhaps a grouper, for three days because he made God mad, and then he emerges with all of his skin intact? Oh, you betcha. Every single living organism, from mosquito to elephant, living peacefully on a wooden cruise ship for almost a year, aka the original love boat, not to mention someone thinking, you know, we really should remember to grab some cockroaches. Also check to make sure we get one of each. Pfft, completely reasonable. Horse and steel in pre-Columbian America? The land being governed by Jewish descendants? And one story about three dudes who saw Jesus when he was astral planing it to the Americas as his body lay in the tomb of Golgotha. And these three dudes asked Jesus to be eternal missionaries in the form of freaking Highlander, an immortal situation type thing. And Jesus was like, heck yes, you can be three Highlanders forever roaming the earth like Cain. And that is in the Book of Mormon, and people believe they run into the three Nephites all the time? Non-vampire vampires? Are you saying, and yes, I am saying this, because since I wrote the LDS Sparkle Damarung back in 2008 about the book Twilight, I have been the leading Mormon vampire authority on this earth. You can believe all the stuff like these immortal dudes who chose to be immortal to serve what is essentially a forever mission. You can believe that. Huh. So while Christian religions are based on faith in a man who took upon himself the sins of the world, that guy, also known as Jesus, kind of a cool dude, and really, that's the relevant part of the story for Christianity. The rest of it's just like guidelines for how to give back in a manner of speaking what to do, what to don't, in order to make up for that gift. So that level of faith is ultimately about belief in the goodness inherent. I mean, you're allowed sort of to waffle on some of the minutiae to kind of pick and choose. Some people take the whole witch thing really seriously and literally, and other people realize, mm, things were different back then. Because ultimately, and this is a grand summation of Christianity, it's about believing that in the end, you know, the white hats win. I mean, I can go, I can go with that to some extent. But the Mormon faith, however, 
They require that you accept the whole story as truth, complete truth. It is perfect. There is not a blemish, not one single flaw in the doctrine. Put a pen in that. Remember that little bit. From Babylonians in wooden submarines with glow-in-the-dark rocks, and oh, we'll talk about that next week, to Joseph Smith being commanded to marry and mate with his kid's nanny, or God would literally kill him. The whole complete truth. So you have to give up on little things like well-known facts, logic, and science, all while purporting that the church encourages intellectual pursuits because the glory of God is intelligence. Now, around the time that those professors were being excommunicated, the church issued uh, the following statement through Boyd KKK Pack. <clears throat> Sorry, he was super racist. Boyd K. Packer at the General Conference of 2003. And brace yourself. The greatest dangers to the church are gays, feminists, and intellectuals. Finally, I'm a triple threat. But we all know that bra-burning lesbians hell-bent on equal treatment in the workplace are a danger to us all. But intellectuals? Those four-eyed weenies? So Sunday school lessons around the globe began featuring the word elite with references to the great white building from Lehi's dream. Lehi, Northwest Jerusalem, born and raised, that is the first prophet in the Book of Mormon. And he has a dream where people are confused on a path to eternity, which is a tree. It's just an anvil symbolic story. So the people who were confused didn't hold on to an iron rod that would help get them there to the path to eternity, this tree. Instead, they wandered off into the haze and were lost. Or worse, they joined a group of people that were in this tall, white, perfect building who stood at its balconies and were mocking the people who were trying to stay on the path. That was an anvil. Smart people are mocking us, and they are bad, and they are wicked, and they are wrong, is the lesson. So the church has been teaching that from the beginning, but still, the glory of God is intelligence. And you could also discern that if the smart people, the elite intellectuals, triple whammied if they're elite gay intellectuals, if they were in the building and the, well, the not smart intellectual thinking folks were at the tree, then what about the glory of God being intelligence? Kind of feel like it should be changed to read, the glory of God is ignorant superiority. Now, the real problem with intellectuals is that they ask questions, they doubt. They demand empirical evidence to support one's theories, like a bunch of jerk holes. And maybe, most importantly, a person of intelligence can appreciate that they've perhaps been wrong and accept a correct answer. Maybe even toss in a mea culpa. 
I mean, I don't know what those feminist lesbians problems are, you know? I mean, it's just like they haven't found the right man. So proof. I've always needed it. And if someone contradicts me on something that I feel pretty confident about, you know, I kind of need you to show me I've been wrong. Hey, I will admit that I was wrong, however, if you prove me wrong, happily. Now, I tried for years to fit into my head all of the church's proof and the quick retort answers that were taught from day one, just, you know, hoping that the weight of all of their evidence would finally dampen the incessant questioning that was forever going on in my think boxer. Now, someone insisting that the sun is purple continuously isn't going to make it so, even if they have their friends and colleagues tell me the same. Step five, they align people against you. So through extensive research testing that theory, I, for years, have referred to myself as Claudia Schiffer, yet somehow my mail is still addressed in my name. You know, there are so many cockamamie theories that the Mormon water carriers have come up with about why the Book of Mormon uh, mentions horses, for example, when there were no horses on the continent pre-Columbian. And the theory is tapers, as in the animal. See, the Native Americans rode tapers. And somehow, you know what? This is just too ridiculous to even carry that further. Freaking tapers? I want you to right now picture the mighty Apache warrior Geronimo astride his round, lumbering taper. Ah! Or, or, oh, how the golden plates, you know, the ones that started it all. Thin enough to be written on and stacked horizontally, carried around, and that they, you know, wouldn't lose those engravings over 800 years time and how all those pages would weigh a ton and were according to the book of mormon carried from the yucatan peninsula by a gravely wounded man all the way to palmyra new york sure or 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 how maybe the pyramids in mexico are evidence that they were indeed Jewish naval Indians. See, the Jews brought the Egyptian secret to building the pyramids with them, don't you know? Ancient Egypt secret, huh? See, there's a phenomenon on the internet called fan fiction, something that I personally love and have loved for decades, honestly. And if you're unfamiliar, so people love certain shows or books or movies, and they write their own stories about their favorite characters or they rewrite the story to satisfy, say, their own desires. I have said for years that the Book of Mormon is really nothing more than an alternate universe piece of fan fiction of the Bible. Tapers. They wrote tapers. Oh my gosh. Walter Lippmann said, when we all think alike, no one thinks very much. You know, so many men and women in the church have left because of digging around in the precarious world of fact. So I find that I have to return to the scientific method and ultimately to Occam's razor. 
which is the simplest answer, is usually the correct one. Like I could detail all of the concepts that I just couldn't buy in the end. I haven't even scratched the surface. We'll talk about it next week. Things like the theory that maybe, oh, the earth is made up of the crusts from other planets. And that's why there's dinosaur bones here. Because you see, maybe the earth is only 6,000 years old. And that's how we can explain dinosaurs. Like God made our planet like you'd make a casserole from leftovers. And we people are just like the crunchy potato chips on top. Or hmm, how people's goodness and righteous actions could change their skin color to white and right. And that racist hunk of nonsense is to this day Mormon doctrine. You know, I could detail all of these things, but I won't today. Now, my main studies in college were the life sciences, like I mentioned, specifically microbiology and genetics. So genetics were like really picking up steam in the early 90s as uh, the Human Genome Project was just ramping up and starting to spit out all kinds of just fascinating information about how our chromosomes work. So here's a quick lesson on how DNA works as a refresher course. So your mom and your dad each give half a puzzle piece of DNA, which is called RNA at the time, to make a full puzzle piece, DNA, which makes you. So you inherit some characteristics from your mom, like her shoulders, that wonky toe in your left foot, and some characteristics from your dad, his inability to like really sell a joke, and that hairy mole on your upper arm. And really, I want you to make a point to ask the doctor about that, okay? But there's a lot more to DNA than Grandpa John's horsey laugh. Now note that the DNA that, for the most part, comes from your mother is called mitochondrial DNA. MT-DNA. And why do we even care about MT-DNA? Because it is incredibly rare for there to be any changes. Now, when two people love each other and they put their puzzle pieces together within the confines of a marriage bed, don't write me letters, or, hey, maybe they just had too much tequila at the club. I don't want to judge. So their puzzle pieces recombine to make a baby's DNA. Now, you don't get all of your mother's your mother's characteristics or all of your father's. You get, you know, some of each and it varies. Otherwise, you and your siblings would be identical little clones. And where's the fun in that? Your mother and your father wouldn't be able to keep you in line by comparing you to your big brother with the straight A's. Now, would they, Rachel? But empty DNA only recombines with itself. So it's virtually the same from mother to child. Like scientists can now track families through the mother's lineage back hundreds of generations. And interesting to note that the Jewish faith considers your Jewish legitimacy through the mother. Nice work. It's mama whose hand rocks the cradle and keeps records of the past. Now, there are some problems with using empty DNA to track changes far back in time, but it's limited to species change. So let's assume that humans were still homo sapiens back in the time of Jesus and the <clears throat> writing of the Book of Mormon, shall we? Now, this approach is best for intra-species comparison, or rather, just one species. Now, this method was used recently to trace 
dog's lineage back to ancient wolves, puppies, big puppies. So in relation to humans, scientists now believe in a mitochondrial Eve, something you may have heard before, and she is the most common ancestor to all humanity. By the way, African woman, hashtag feminism, hashtag black excellence. Now, this isn't to say that Adam and Eve of Genesis has a scientific proof. This just means that the majority of humans descended from a specific ancient civilization. Now, let's say that one woman back then had uh, many female children, and they were the hot chicks of the village, and they mated multiple times within the sanctity of a marriage pelt, and they produced loads of offspring. It's like this is natural selection. Naturally, guys pick the chicks that look like they can produce many, say, manly, healthy, thrivable babies. Now, some of their family branches produced female-less lines, so they died out. Or the women didn't have children at all. So we have this one mtDNA line that traces back to this woman, mitochondrial Eve. And she's a woman um, believed to have lived like 150,000 years ago in either uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia, that region. Pretty freaking cool, right? And that's pretty dang specific. The science behind all of this is amazing and astoundingly accurate. Are we all getting on the same page here? Okay, good. So sexually derived DNA mm -hmm, uh, has a tendency to mutate. It's the mixing of the mama puzzle piece to daddy puzzle piece. So that makes it less reliable than mitochondrial DNA ancestral mapping. This is important. Mitochondrial DNA is the most accurate way to determine matriarchal ancestry, which is like a straight shot back through time because of the lack of mutation. Now, there needs to be a greater pool of samples from cultures around the globe for straight DNA alleles, uh, the markers that indicate all the different characteristics, like a wonky toe, hair color, horsey laugh everyone in your family can't help. We need more of that data for that mapping to be more accurate. Now, groups that we know are identifiable, uh, relatively speaking, with mtDNA mapping, um, those are called haplogroups, and those include um, South Amerindian, and those are the native peoples of South America, North Amerindian, native peoples of North America, Mestizo, um, Native Americans blended with Europeans and Africans, Arabian, the Arabian Peninsula, and as of this podcast, 19 other groups specific to the rest of the globe. Like, this science should cover people uh, from Jerusalem fling to the American continent in 600 BC. Yes? Yes. So for our experiment, you take the mtDNA of the native peoples from Central America, Mexico, the Native American Indians of the Southwest, and so forth. Then you take samples of native Jews in Iran, Jerusalem, the Middle East, so forth, and you do a comparison. Now the mtDNA should be the same or pretty darn close to a ringer if the people of the Book of Mormon were who Joseph Smith said they were. Spoiler alert, they're not. Now, Native Americans, who Mormons considered to be one of the lost tribes of Israel uh, through Manasseh, is their claim, 
Native Americans in the, US, in the U.S. have five distinct haplogroups that show their ancestry. Not one of the tests have shown a link to Middle Eastern or Arabian people. Not one. Like the family name Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, it actually has its own distinct marker, haplogroup J. Now this means that a group of Jewish people with claims of being descendants of Aaron, the brother of the Torah's Moses, they actually have an identifiable marker on their DNA. And that helps prove their claim of belonging to this ancient, closely related clan. And that is so freaking cool. And note that many Arab groups uh, share a similar, if not identical, marker. And then we get into the Abraham argument, and I'm not going there. Suffice it to say, we can figure out regions from where people have descended. (sighs) I will give Joseph Smith a little slack for personalizing the ideas that were flitting about the countryside in the late 1700s and early 1800s. A lot of people speculated that Native Americans were possibly descended from Jews, but everyone else eventually gave that up as a bunch of hogwash because, you know, science. Now, this is a quote from Joseph Smith. I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. It is the most correct book on earth, and the Mormon church still believes that. Now, that's a heck of a statement that obviously isn't supported by any earth logic, and you'd think with these pesky facts and understandings, this rock-hard evidence staring people in the face would get Mormons thinking, hey, maybe we were wrong. Maybe we should stop pushing this idea. Maybe we should stop funding BYU's FAIR.org division to spend all manner of money on research to prove that the stories in the Book of Mormon are rooted in truth, because maybe that money would be better spent on our welfare and service programs. You know, heck, we have enough money to solve homelessness in the whole of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico with the money that we spend on this stuff. (laughs) Well, you'd be wrong if you thought they'd adopt a more intelligent approach. Now, the church dismisses all of this science and factual information that has stood the test of time by saying that the studies are biased. And members of the church testify that all of this negative speech and hate-mongering towards their beliefs only bolsters their faith. Now, I've heard members say that science and history are no substitute for, and I'm not making this up because I said this crap too, they are no substitute for the positive feelings they experience from their beliefs. It's true because it feels good. Now, Dr. Simon Southerton was a molecular biologist who was kicked out of the church after coming forward with his findings that, nope, the people of the Book of Mormon are not, in fact, Jews who built boats and rowed ashore. Hallelujah. Interesting side topic. The official word on why he was excommunicated was because he got a little sexual with a woman who was not his wife. Hmm, amazing timing that. Almost coincidental. Now the mantra began again in the church to focus on the scriptures, to focus on the words of the prophet, to only listen to or read what the leaders of the church 
had approved. Now, for someone who loved academia, research, stumbling and finding answers, I mean, this was unacceptable and incredibly confusing. I was told that I had to accept what I'd been fighting for years. The church saw the noble and honest pursuit of truth as a four-letter word. But it's more insidious. I mean, anything that challenges anything the church has taught as truth is wicked. It's wrong. And this has led to a culture for decades of Mormons braced for lies and ready to challenge it. Ah, here we go. Now, I was told growing up that people would try to convince me that Joseph Smith, for example, had done illegal things before he found the golden plates. And I was to know that that was Satan trying to keep me from the gospel. I was taught that people would try to make me read materials that called Joseph Smith a con man. And that was Satan trying to keep me from the gospel. It wasn't until I left the church and actually had left the faith before I found out that it was all true. He'd been arrested. He, he had a rap sheet. And it's true. But when you're Mormon, you're told that that is a fabrication. I mean, just on and on. Anything that made me question my faith, that was wicked. So I had to be hyper aware of these lies and I had to be ready to counter it with the truth. You know, the truth that was helpfully laid out to me in various church printed materials and books and songs and lessons. And I find it interesting that Mormon missionaries are told absolutely not to get into scripture debates with non-members. Hmm, I wonder why. Because you're taught as a Mormon that you know the truth. You gain an air of superiority. You know the truth. It's your responsibility to share that truth because other people don't know anything. You do. You are the keeper of information. And the information all comes from one source. Ignorant superiority. So by that turn, the average devout Mormon believes themselves to be an expert on all things theological because they go to church every Sunday and they read books the church wants them to read and they're told that they are experts. And you get how arrogant that is? Oh my gosh, I ostracized myself in the fourth damn grade because I told my class that Jesus was born on April 6th, not December 25th, because the church believes that to be the truth. And that's what I was taught. And I was told how special we Mormons were for knowing that. Oh, so dumb. What a dummy I was. And I mean, I'm not alone in doing this sort of thing. I mean, it's the whole, oh, well, actually, attitude. Gross. Don't be that person. I was that person and I had to eat a lot of crow. And you know, the beaks just stick in my teeth. Now, while I was working on the final rounds of editing and submitting my next book for review, oh, by the way, that book, and it came to pass on, out on uh, May 18th in a bookstore near you. So a Mormon got their hands on it and proceeded to dismiss the whole book because, wait for it, I dropped a hyphen in Latter-day Saint. And you know what? Fair enough. I made a mistake 
and I transposed Utah Valley with Salt Lake Valley in a casual aside in the first chapter. And that is an error on my part totally. That is a typo that I made the mistake of. It's repaired, by the way, when the book comes out on May 18th and it came to pass. You'll see that those typos don't exist. But at the time, and I want to say that when I heard back from this person that I had gotten Mormons and Mormon doctrine wrong, my immediate reaction was to accept that I had done something wrong, that I had embarrassed myself, and that I needed to get it right. Do you know? And that's because that's how I was raised. And here's the thing. I didn't get the doctrine wrong. I had typos. And fair enough, let me catch the typo. There isn't an author in this world who wouldn't want to go back and fix that one flippin' comma or that one word that, oh, I just said that two paragraphs before, whatever it is. Every one of us would go back and fine-tune things. Unfortunately, I was given the opportunity to so that when it actually hit like trade publications and so forth, I had those things repaired. But the idea of this is completely wrong because you got a fact incorrect and it's not even, it's not even an, an actual fact. But then they don't have to do that themselves? Tapers! I can't let that go. Apparently my whole manuscript needed to rewrite or to be tossed because I got the Mormon stuff wrong. Now I should note that in this novel, my main character, Adam Young, this devout kid from Provo, Utah, goes to the temple, wears garments, describes life as a Mormon, what it's like to be on a mission. Um, he has to challenge some very deep doctrinal stuff. None of that, none of that was considered incorrect. But I had those typos. Throw it out. It's wrong. Some people might say it's evil. See, this is how Satan gets you. You know, first you're dropping hyphens. Then you're dropping trow and having premarital sex. See, Satan laces his lies with the truth. See, what you got to understand is that when they said horses in the Book of Mormon, they meant tapers. Because, of course, everybody knows there weren't horses pre-Columbian America. Except it says horses. So wait a minute. Why do they get a pass? You know, there have been over 3,000 corrections to the Book of Mormon since its first, second, 40th, etc. printing. Well, it's because they don't mean to deceive. It's just a human error. The prophets have all been men, Laura. Humans make mistakes. But by the way, don't forget to be perfect and never mess up. And also, it's the most correct book on earth. So be smart. But not like, you know, outside book smart. When we say the glory of God is intelligence, what we mean is be smart enough to choose our side and be satisfied. Stop looking up at that building where people are having interesting conversations and mocking us for loving carrots suspended in jello. We're standing at this tree being sad for them. Get with the program and shut up and stop asking questions. God will tell you the answers to all of those questions when you're dead. Isn't that nice? Ugh. 
I'm just tired of fake experts, aren't you? I'm tired of people who don't really know something, dismissing anything that challenges what they believe to be truth. Arrogant, ignorant superiority. You know, I got tired of it being a bad thing to want to learn a dissenting viewpoint. I got tired of being told fact-checking actual sources would take me down a dangerous path. I got freaking tired of the fear-mongering. And I got really tired of having to ignore the truth staring at me in the Petri dish while some old white dude told me in his best banal sacrament service voice that what I was seeing wasn't truth. And to continue to see that would mean my eternal damnation and the loss of my family. I got really tired of being gaslighted. Don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. And even worse, don't tell me to stand there and take it and wait for the rainbow when you're done. Tapers! They wrote tapers? Ah, oh, Always go with knowledge. I do still believe the glory of God, Yahweh, a greater consciousness, whatever, is intelligence. I do believe that. And you know what? I'm happy to serve as your control group if you're still experimenting. Thanks again for listening. Hey, I'll wrap up Mormon 101 with some of the really esoteric stuff most people have no clue Mormons believe. And then we're going to have an amazing series of episodes where I'm talking with former Mormons who fell in love with their missions. Some of them are still together. And this is just perfect timing for And It Came to Pass out May 18th. So please like, reblog, comment at my site, laura-stone.com, and I'll see you next episode.